There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? Where do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today. Minutes 81 to 85, which start with Ian zooming and enhancing several times the cloud of logograms. And I will have complaints in a second about that. He says it's going to take us years. Now, as Hannah interrupts, asking what's his term here? Okay. So the zoom and enhance. When he finally centers the screen, the logo in the middle is translated as Abbott chooses save Louise Ian. Above left is Heptapod. Below right is Costello. Below left and off to the right is Louise writes Hepto. And below right and above right, both, is Louise has weapon. So the screen is filled with things we've seen before and things that don't need to be in this group. Yeah. But this will happen again in a second. I think this is just the heptopods knowing exactly where he's going to zoom in and they needed Louise to see this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) See, they know the future. They know he's going to zoom in on this group. He's going to get excited by seeing the word time, which he's not to yet, but... If they know he's only going to zoom in on one thing, why not just put there when he needs to see? Why bother with any of the rest of it? Because I'm manipulating Louise, not Ian. They don't. No one cares about Ian. Okay. <laughs> Except maybe Louise. Because uh, then he zooms in and enhances again on Abbott chooses save Louise Ian in a different place. Uh, and this is, uh, we've heard Hannah now say, what's this term here? She says, mom. And then she says, mom again, as we cut to Hannah walking into focus. In the script, this is Hannah, age 10. In the original story, this is Hannah, age 14. In the original story, Louise says, you'll come out of your bedroom, a graffiti-covered notebook computer in hand, working on a report for school. Specifically, it's for social studies. And Louise says, hmm, sweetie. And Hannah says, what's this term for that thing like like a technical term in the story? I think this is from the story. She says, there's some technical name for it, some math word. Remember that time Dad was here and he was talking about the stock market? He used it then. In the movie, she continues where we make a deal, and we both get something out of it. Louise says, a compromise. Hannah says, no, like it's a competition. We get a two-shot of the two of them. Louise says, "Mm mm-hmm. And Hannah says, but both sides end up happy. Louise says, like a win-win. Hannah says, more science-y than that. And Louise says, if you want science, call your father. Kind of struck me as a bit rude and out of character. Her tone was a little much, especially since it doesn't seem like they hate each other and they've been divorced for a long time. It's like she just had some, like, urgent, bitter resentment of like, her <laughs> father all of this. Yeah. And now in the film, Hannah just walks away. And we get a shot of Louise watching her. In the story, the narration continues, Judging from your expression, that will be more effort than you want to make. At this point, you and your father won't be getting along well. Can you call Dad and ask him, but don't tell him it's for me? I think you can call him yourself. You'll fume. Jesus, Mom, I can never get help with my homework since you and Dad split up. And in the script, Louise just returns to her papers. Hannah frowns, and Hannah says, You always do that. You and Dad both put in just a little effort and then kick me to the other parent. And Louise says, Hannah, that's not fair. And Hannah says, It really isn't. And she storms (laughs) off down the hall, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good dialogue. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure I've heard some version of that several times. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we cut to the present. Louise asleep at her desk. We hear Anne say a thank you to someone. Um, Louise raises her head, uh, we get a beat, and then we hear Ian say sorry to her. And Louise says, it's okay, I'm up. What time is it? 
And great question. Going back to time. Mm-hmm. And we orient ourselves around time. And that's often the first question we have is we're orienting ourselves. Yep. <laughs> so what time is it? In the script, she asks, what day is it? So maybe to imply that she's getting a bit more lost with mm-hmm. these back and forth visions. And... Yeah. And we can all relate, I'm sure, to the past year. Not having any idea what day it is. And Ian says, I know, right? Yeah. And Louise says, I mean it. I can't remember when I am anymore. And Ian says, I don't know what day of the week it is, but it's the day you see what the heptapods have given us. In the film, he says, it's time you opened that bottle you've been hiding. She says, you cracked something, didn't you? And he says, yeah, come here. Take a look at this section. Seems to be talking about time. He zooms in, and the symbol for time is not the one we've actually been shown in the film. In minute 55, the montage of symbols. Right below the center time logogram is Abbott chooses Save Louise, Ian, again. At left is Costello. The two overlapping ones are Abbott and Heptapod. At right is Offer Weapon. And at the top, multiple times, is Abbott. He says their symbol for time is everywhere. He's right. Time is on the screen multiple times, and he highlights it. There's an overlap of Louise has weapon and must learn Ian Louise. And then there is Abbott and Heptapod several times as well. They didn't expect us to pause which is lame and he says so what is this and he zooms out a formula for faster than light travel now in the script at this point he shows her a peculiar kind of jet engine animation rendered 3d uh, particle acceleration he says and he describes it closest comparison would be cold fusion what this process does it creates a room temperature nuclear reaction in sexy little proportions through a vacuum jacket and a skinny film resistance heater pushing the energy out the other end so the heptapods have given them something practical in the midst of all this other stuff. The film doesn't like it to be practical, and I think I like that better. I think the film also just wants the explanations to be more palatable for a general audience, so it doesn't get as deep into... Well, I think giving something practical would be palatable, but it'd be confusing. Because, like, why are they giving us this thing? The specifics don't matter. It just matters they gave us something. He says, who can tell? There are too many gaps. Nothing's complete. And he highlights the gaps between the time logograms, which I thought was kind of silly because there's other logograms in those gaps. He says, then it dawned on me. Come here. And he, he goes to her computer and he says, right here. And he gets a picture of like the whole 3D cloud of things. He says, stop focusing on the ones. Look at the zeros. How much of this is data? How much of it is negative space? So I measured it. 0.0833 recurring. Now there's an amusing prop thing here as well. Because on the computer, it does have the one number as point zero point zero eight with mm-hmm. nine threes after. But the alternate number, it puts as 0.91 with seven sixes and then rounds off to a seven. So for some reason, the larger number has been rounded off sooner. And the smaller number has not been rounded. So this was tight manually. And Ian moves to the side, takes his glasses off, says perhaps you'd like that as a fraction. And we get a shot of Louise. And I think she's supposed to look like she understands already, even though he's going to explain it anyway for the audience. He says one of 12. Yeah, I was going to say that. I'm like, that must have been for the audience. I mean, even if Louise's PhD is in linguistics, she's clearly a well-educated person who's taken college algebra at the least. It just felt kind of in like the mansplaining territory, but really I think it was just for the audience. It's still better than the script, which actually had it (laughs) marked with Arabic numerals one over 12 with Louise's (laughs) name in Heptapod next to that. So she'd notice. Yeah, I just saw 0.083 and I'm like, oh, okay, that's one. Mm -hmm. But not everyone in the audience would. Some people really, really hate. (laughs) Yes. And we did the basic fractions. That was a long time ago for some people. And they didn't pay attention. 
So we cut to a conference room. Ian and Louise standing at one end, various people sitting around. And Louise says what they're saying right here is this is one of 12. We are part of a larger whole. Nice edit here because as she says that, we get a cut that shows there are more people in the room. And then Halpern says, or we're one of 12 contestants for a prize. Now in the script, this is the first time Halpern has been in the story, which is weird. I'd like that the movie introduced him early. Of course, right there. She's viewing this as collaboration. We all have a piece of the message and something mm-hmm. to contribute. And Halpern's viewing this as competition. We have the the best message, the competing message. We have to win a prize. So. I, I like that she turns to Ian when she says, why do I have to talk to him? <laughs> Not Weber, who's right. right across the table. But Weber says we're all working together. And Louise continues, we need to talk to the other sites, help them with what they've gotten from the other heptapods. And Halpern says, in case you don't remember, we're blacked out. China just threatened to destroy their shell. We're on our own. And Louise says, but this says that all of the pieces fit together. Now, continuing from their practical engine thing they were given, in the script, Agent Halpern says, does our power source work all on its own? And Ian says, technically, yes. Halpern says, there you go. And Louise explains, if I've learned anything from the study of their language and their way of thinking, it's that the whole is far greater than the sum of its parts. And Halpern says, that's a nice theory. Keep in mind, this is 94 pages into the script. He just got introduced, and he's here to tell her she's wrong about the stuff we should know is obvious. Nice. Let me give you another one. We're all being given weapons to fight among ourselves until one faction of humanity remains. And Louise says, that makes no sense. And Halpern says it does if you consider the heptopods didn't come here in peace. We are a world with no single leader, not even with a global council. It's impossible to deal with just one of us. So they let us fight until one is left. Russia is rolling two tank divisions to its borders, and we caught heat balloons in the engines of eight nuclear subs in Pollyanna. South American forces began mobilizing last week in major cities, shutting down harbors. Japan and Korea are mobilizing their long-range missiles. We're on the brink, and our alien friends just gave us all a shove. And Ian says, that's not the way they think. And Agent Halpern says, it's the way we think, though, and that's what matters. In the film, all he says is, and I'm telling you that no one else cares. Which kind of gets the point across just as well, but I like the thing about that's the way we think, which is what matters. We're being manipulated. So in the film, he says, two hours ago, we pulled this audio off a secure channel in Russia. Someone on the science scene there was broadcasting wide, and we get a voice and a translation in their final session, the alien said, There is no time. Many become one. I fear we have all been given weapons. If anyone is receiving this, please. And we get a wide shot from behind Louise and Ian as there are gunshots over the audio. And then it cuts back to Halpern. And then back to Louise, and she says, Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways you can interpret what he said. And Halpern says, I don't need an interpreter to know what this means. Russia just executed one of their own experts to keep their secret. It's another stereotype albeit one with some evidence <laughs> to back it up, about Russians mm, just yeah. executing and poisoning their... Well, yeah, China's the antagonist here, but Russia possibly doing the worst thing, I think. Yeah. Basically, to Halpern, America's magnanimous, but we can't collaborate with others because they're all <laughs> so terrible. And interesting BBC article about poisonings in Russia. <laughs> they're chosen for their subtlety and theatricality, which seem like opposing things, but I see how they're not. Poison takes time to work. It's harder to prove. Yep. Radioactive polonium and Novichok are apparently the two most commonly used. The most recent example of it was 44-year-old attorney Alexei Navalny, 
I don't know if you remember hearing his name in the news. He was speaking out against Putin's mm. corruption. Yeah. And was found poisoned, but they were able to save him in time. Apparently, there have been more attempts on his life that haven't worked out yet. Hmm. I think that's like the, the common view of the Russian. That's why Americans like Chernobyl so much, too. The miniseries. Oh. It reaffirms the stereotypes that we have about Russians. Like, look how they handled their crisis yeah. because they're so secretive and they did this and they did that. And it's a lot easier to look at another country's crisis and analyze why they're horrible without mm -hmm. analyzing your country's own actions. What was the one here? Three Mile Island? Just wait till that mm. movie comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Louise says many become one. Could just be their way of saying some assembly required it. Halpern asks why hand it out to us in pieces. Why not just give it all over? And Louise answers, what better way to force us to work together for once? And for a guy who in the script was only just introduced, he's surprisingly reasonable. <laughs> he says, even if I did believe you, how in the world are you going to get anybody else to play along and give up their data? Ian says, we offer ours in return. Weber says, yeah. Halpern says, a trade. And Ian says, it's a non-zero-sum game. Seemed so obvious, no, stating it like it's a brilliant revelation. Yeah. How do you get something from someone? You yeah, offer give them, them something, something else. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> a trade. Wow. It's a win-win. <laughs> to be fair, this film is still the only place I've heard this term. Yeah. I know this term exists, but I haven't heard it anywhere else because I don't hang out in philosophical math puzzles, I guess. It's the, yeah. the, the place. Zero-sum game all the time. Non-zero, right. it's just everything else. Everything. Examples of a non-zero-sum game are the game of chicken. Right where you want to do the opposite of what the other person does, or you both want to bail out. Well, we should define non-zero-sum game first, because probably a lot of the audience doesn't know what it is. So non-zero-sum It's where sum no game, one loses. It's where no one loses. Well, actually, Ideally, that's not no true. In a non-zero-sum game... Chicken, you can have a loss. They can both lose. They both crash. parties can win, or both parties can lose. Well, I, the one example, one of the first like short ones was a husband and wife who want to go out for the night. I think he wanted to go to a sporting event, she wanted to go to a play, and it was like, he'd rather go to the play with her than do nothing, and she'd rather go to the sporting event with him than do nothing. Mm -hmm. So there's no loss involved, they just have to figure out which is the better win for the two of them. Which really, if you study communication, that's no different difference from compromise. Right. Where you just decide to do one thing and not do the other. Yeah. Or accommodation, where maybe you accommodate the other person and decide not to go to your sporting event. I'm not sure, other than potential some extra mathematics involved, there's not really anything different about a non-zero-sum game that wouldn't be defined by any of the five types of... It, the it five was, conflicts. It's the math things. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the communication version is to describe it. The math version, and I lo looked it up on a Stanford website, they had tables of numbers for each one of these. It's like win-loss possibilities. Uh, another example was uh, what they call stag hunt, which is when like a tribe is out hunting for a stag for a meal, and one of the men sees a rabbit. If he stops and kills that rabbit, he'll get to eat. But if he stops to kill the rabbit, then the entire group might not catch the stag. And so he has to decide between a win for himself and a win for everyone. Which sounds like there's a loss for everyone if he chooses himself. Right. So would these collaborative board games that have become more popular, like Pandemic, would those be examples of non-zero-sum games since you would either win or lose with your party? I guess, yeah. <laughs> when everyone's on the same side. 
And then one that I put the description of here is the prisoner's dilemma. Two criminals are captured by the police. Police suspect they are responsible for a murder, but do not have enough evidence to prove it in court, though they are able to convict them of a lesser charge. The prisoners are put in separate cells with no way to communicate with one another, and each is offered to confess. If neither prisoner confesses, both will be convicted of the lesser offense and sentenced to a year in prison. If both confess to murder, both will be sentenced to five years. If, however, one prisoner confesses while the other does not, then the prisoner who confessed will be granted immunity, and the prisoner who did not confess will go to jail for 20 years. So, ideally, you want to be the one, the only one who confesses, but your best result is if neither of you say anything, because then you each just get a year. And we played a version of this in Bible class in, I think it was eighth grade. We were told in our group to try to win. You got points based on the numbers you pick. You were in duos, and then it was a group of, I think, three duos or four duos. Yeah. And basically what I looked for, non-zero sum games, there are point values assigned mm-hmm. to yeah. that. <laughs> and it was like, if you all pick the same thing, you each get a point. But if you, if everyone else picks the same thing and you pick a different thing, you get three points. And so given the instruction to win, we were lying to our <laughs> partners <laughs> over and over in our larger group, telling them we're going to cooperate and then picking the other number to get more points. The problem is a group on the other side of the room figured out they were supposed to cooperate somehow. <laughs> I guess because they're Christians. Whatever. They were just more emotionally evolved yeah. than your group. And no. <laughs> so they all cooperated, 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 and slowly their larger group was getting like one point, one point, one point, one point. And we're going up and down with like one of us getting three, one of us getting three, one of us getting negative, whatever the point values were. And so over time we lost. And then the teacher's like, yeah, the best move was to cooperate. You said to win and not to cooperate. <laughs> you tricked us. So I was the evil one who always went against the group <laughs> to try to win. Who's surprised about that? <laughs> Sorry, that just made me think of another thing we did in school, and it has nothing to do with this. What is it? We did this game in accounting class where we each ran a fake pen company. Okay. And we decided, what do you spend on R&D yeah. for new pens? Mm-hmm. What do you put into producing pens? Like, how many do you make, and what price do you set them at? Like, that's the only number yeah. you picked. And it was like month by month, I think. And I figured out really quickly that if I paid a lot of R&D, my pen price could be really high. Yeah. And so I'd make a lot of money. The problem is I was going into debt. And so for like first five, six rounds, I am making like tons more than everyone else in the class and getting super rich. And then like round six, suddenly I'm at negative 10,000. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? I didn't didn't notice the little bet column. Basically, I was raising the price, but people weren't buying my pens. Oh, yeah. See, that's They were buying happened. some of them. Yeah. Which was making a lot of profit. Mm-hmm. But they weren't buying enough. And so gradually, I was building up this just stash yeah. of extra pens. <laughs> and at a certain point, no one was buying mine at all because now mine were too expensive. Don't tell me to win because I'll try to win quickly. But then you won't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what we've learned is you're like that kid who fails the marshmallow. Yes. <laughs> I, ne- I never did the marshmallow problems. test specifically, but I, yeah, I probably would have eaten that. Well, I don't like marshmallows <laughs> that much, so I might have been okay. But if it was like an Oreo test, all oh, that Oreo is gone. Yeah. Because <laughs> you don't know. Like, you don't know whether Who knows what happened to that other one? That person might die outside. They might never yeah. come back. This Oreo is here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> my non-zero-sum game. I don't think yeah. if I used that term correctly. That's okay. The film didn't really use it correctly either, or the script didn't, where you were mentioning the stock market, because the stock market, according to what I read on a Stanford math website, is not an example of a non-zero-sum game. To be fair, we don't know <laughs> what he said about that, but yeah, that's a good point. 
he might have been making that point. It's not a non-zero. It's like someone's going to lose. Maybe Hannah wanted to buy stocks. We don't know. But the transition is we get a shot of Ian and Louise kind of close. And Louise's eyes start to go down. And we cut to Louise in the future, the flashback, and her eyes come up. So it was a nice edit on the eyes. And I think this would be the first time the audience would realize, maybe not all of them, but the first strong evidence of this being visions of the future Mm -hmm. rather than the past. Yeah. And now she's using the knowledge in the present to solve the future issue. Well, it's because they just manipulated her with all those little Louise. (laughs) They knew what they were putting in that cloud of logograms. They wanted to jumpstart it. So Louise says non-zero sum game. Hannah stops on the stairs and says, that's it. Yeah, thanks. And a little bit more from Caroline McAvoy in her article, playing the non-zero-sum game, the politics of Arrival. McAvoy says, at its heart, then, Arrival is an allegory for human communication and our relationship with language. Much has already been made of the film's reference to the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. But the scene with Louise and her daughter is also a direct nod to game theory and points to the film's far less discussed political theme, in the face of a crisis, is conflict inevitable? It's a question central to international politics and relations, and Arrival answers it by following a theory of global politics that developed in the late 80s known as constructivism. The basic idea is that politics between states is socially constructed and not the inevitable consequence of human behavior or the result of an essential feature of state relations. Whether states see each other as friends or foes depends on how we choose to approach and interpret that relationship. If the rules of the international game are zero-sum, it's because somewhere along the line we have decided that they are so. That the Soviet Union was at one time the enemy of the United States, and yet now Putin is extended an invitation to the White House, is as much a product of the collective meanings we place upon our actions as it is about the structure of international power politics. I forgot to nitpick earlier, but related to that, in the script, Halpern said we don't have a global council. Arguably, that's what the UN is trying to be. They've even mentioned the UN in the film. China went to the UN. And this hypothetical scenario, she continues, is exactly what Arrival presents us with. The heptapods appear as a blank slate, neither threatening nor overly welcoming, and it's how the human characters interpret what they do and say that drives the interaction. As Wendt notes, the possibility for miscalculation is extremely high, and so state leaders must proceed with caution. Colonel Weber tries to understand Louise's work methods with the heptapods mm-hmm. when he says, Everything you do in there I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against us? So the military are ready to attack, but aren't making any sudden movements. It's to the film's credit that it shows different states trying, at least at first, to work collectively, sharing information from their respective camps to learn what the aliens want. There are no mustache-twirling political villains here, only bureaucratic actors trying to navigate their way through a global crisis. Yeah. And by the time the film shows us General Shang actually doing anything, not counting the news reports, he's not doing anything bad. He's at a party. He's just hanging out, because it cuts to the future. States exist in a world of perpetual anarchy, where they are forced by necessity to prize their own security above everything else, States simply cannot trust each other to act honorably, and since no one wants to be the sucker, every country has an incentive to increase its own power in order to protect themselves. 
when states are faced with a much greater power like an alien race that has mastered intergalactic space travel they're left with two choices put aside their differences with other states and act collectively to oppose the greater force or throw their neighbors under the bus and welcome their insect overlords yeah spend all your money on r&d for your pens and the aliens come in and ruin your business however arrival <laughs> rejects this way of thinking arguing that hostility is not an inevitable consequence of international order but a choice that we make one that might sometimes be justified but can easily lead to catastrophic consequences finally politically arrival drives home the point that if we act like the world is a zero-sum game then that is all we'll ever get to play because we aren't open to the possibility that the actions of others could have positive intent sometimes the alien will be predator sometimes they'll be superman but we do ourselves a disservice if we assume they are either before learning to hear what they're actually saying more often than not we can reach a win-win and maybe gain a time-bending language as part of the bargain yeah, it's a pretty interesting article and goes back to listening, which I always talk about is in given short shrift, even in communication classrooms, where we are expected to listen in a public speaking class, for example, we might have 30 students, and that means we're going to be speaking maybe 3% of the time and listening 97% of the time, but our public speaking textbooks are all about the proper ways to verbally and non-verbally speak, and listening rarely even gets a chapter, if that usually it's, like it's relegated to a paragraph listening or is a important. page, even Next. though it's the thing that we do most of the time. And if we look at the different aspects of communication, listening, speaking, writing, and I want to say there's something else. There's a fourth one, but I'm not remembering what it is. It could just be reading. But either way, what's the first of those that our brains do that they process out of those four? Of course, it's listening because we can hear even before we're born. And in school, preschool, kindergarten, we're typically taught listening roles, but more in the form of obedience rather than like really listening to other people. But we're listening first, and then we're speaking, and then we're writing. But in school, most of the attention is, it's like backwards, it's focused more on writing, even though we're going to do that the least amount of time in our lives. And then speaking, and then listening is given the least amount of time and focus even though that's what we'll do the most yeah <laughs> we just assume it happens but it clearly doesn't <laughs> which this movie and the evidence is this, this movie even made that point yeah. <laughs> in the helicopter with ian's introduction louise didn't have her headphones on she couldn't mm -hmm. listen to him because she couldn't hear him and so they couldn't communicate his talking was wasted now continuing in the present halpern says nine of the landing sites have gone total comms blackout now, a lot of this dialogue of Halpern here gets kind of muffled because we're with Louise and she realizes what she just did, even though we might not completely yet. And then we're behind her and like a silhouette as Halpern continues talking. Only way to reach them is to physically drive there and yell at the border guards, which we're doing, but it won't be fast enough. Ian says there's got to be a way to get the message to them. And Halpern says to our allies, maybe, but at this stage, it's too little, too late. We're close on Louise for this. What we need is to get all the other nations online before one starts global war and there's no way for us to reach them. We leave the room. We see 
and from the editing we can assume Louise sees this, what at first looks like the shell, descending. But if we're paying attention, not just glancing at the screen, we can see the shape is different. This is more of a cylinder and not that curvy yeah. wedge. But then it descends between the camera and some of the military lights set up, so we can see this is small. And Ian says, okay, hold on a second. There is. It's right above us. He's saying their way of communicating with everyone is the shell itself. And we see Louise from the right front, and then we get Louise POV looking down at her hands and ink floating in the air in a white space. So she's she's seeing the near future. We'll get to this, I think, next segment, the next couple segments. And then we get Louise close from the left front. As Weber says, that's problematic for us right now. The Pentagon's convinced our shell will retaliate. My guess is they'll order us. We're on Louise as she starts to lean like she's going to turn away, but she doesn't leave just yet as the segment ends. I do have one final thing for this episode. I won't go through it in detail because it'll take too long, but I will point out that Abbott does not score very well on the Kozlovic Black Christ figure scale. He gets, uh, but the newer version of the scale, out of 30, he gets a 15, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want him to score higher? <laughs> I thought he, I thought he might. Because, I mean, he's clearly making a sacrifice for all of mankind, but there's so many things that he doesn't have because, you know, he, it doesn't appear that he's dead and then he comes back. We don't know how he was born. We don't know how old he is. It's really difficult with his body shape for him to make a cruciform pose. And there's a bunch of things that are missing. He, he doesn't, as far as I can tell, the film version does not have eyes. So he definitely doesn't have blue eyes, which a cinematic Christ figure will. We're racist. But he did score for, if you've heard this list or seen it in my blog, being tangible, being central, being an outsider, being divinely sourced or tasked for having an alter ego. Abbott's not his real name. For having a group of associates around him. The same scientists keep coming to him. And there's the 12 sites. Uh, having a Judas figure, a Mary Magdalene figure, a Virgin Mary figure, and a John the Baptist figure. He is working in service to lessers, who are sometimes ungrateful, like Halpern. He makes a willing sacrifice. This was a point of contention every time I did the Christ figuring thing, but whether or not they, a Christ figure in a film can make atonement for real-world problems. We've discussed a lot of what that could be interpreted as what the film is saying about reality, so I gave him that one. There are miracles and signs. He knew the bomb was going to blow up and knock them out of the ship. Like, he knows stuff ahead of time. And holy exclamations, because... The first time, was it the first time he wrote on the screen? I think it was. Louise says, oh God, or oh my God. But 15 out of 30, he's not a good cinematic Christ figure. If you want to hear me talk about one who scored higher than that, you can listen to The Room Minute, <laughs> where Johnny scored much better. Actually, I don't know if he scored much better. I think he got like a 20. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> well, that one, there's deliberate stuff. There's a yeah. cruciform pose when he's laying on the ground dead. It's a whole thing. And that's just because he thinks he's God. Yes. <laughs> Someone who has an ego and is the main character, they're going to do things that fit well with this. So you can listen to The Room Minute. That show is over now, but all those episodes are out there on your podcatcher of choice. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. I used to think 
this was the beginning of your story.